Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I'm Scott Guthrie, a neonatologist, the state project leader for the Tennessee's Tiniest Babies Project, and the past infant medical director for TIPQC. One of the things that I like so much about these podcasts are the interesting people that we get to have conversations with about topics that can help improve care for mothers and babies, not only in Tennessee, but anywhere else where this podcast is being listened to. Today, we have Dr. Judy Ashner joining me. Dr. Ashner is director and member scientist at the Center for Discovery and Innovation at Hackensack Meridian Health and professor of pediatrics at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine. She's the former physician-in-chief of the Children's Hospital and chair of the Department of Pediatrics at Hackensack University Medical Center. And she's the principal investigator of a recent NIH award that will look at environmental influences on childhood outcomes. This is an ECHO project that she's been involved with for at least over a decade now. Dr. Ashner is involved in many national and international organizations and lectures on topics related to neonatology in developed and developing countries throughout the world. And on a personal note, Dr. Asher was one of my mentors when I was a fellow at Vanderbilt and then hired me to be part of her faculty. I have truly, truly been blessed to know her and to be influenced by her. And Judy, I want to thank you so very much for that. And last but not least, you're the founder of TIPQC. Say hello to our audience real quick uh, as we welcome you to our show today. So hello, everyone. And it is just wonderful to be back with the TIPQC audience. And Scott, I am so proud of you and what you have accomplished in your career. It really makes me happy to see how much you have been thriving and how much you are giving back to TIPQC. Well, again, thanks for your influence and, and opening that door for me and teaching me all the things that I needed to to, to have some success. But hey, I want to talk about you for a little bit, because how often do I get to sit down with my mentor, someone who is in the midst of an amazing career? I mean, you have just done it all, Judy, and you've done it all superbly well. So just for the folks that are listening to us, because this is a bit more of a, of a medically heavy topic today, I bet people are interested in your career and your journey. So tell us a little bit about that, moving from a clinical neonatologist into administration summarize the past amazing <laughs> two plus decades into like uh, five minutes for us. Yeah, first of all, it's impossible for me to wrap my head around how long I have been in academic medicine and related to pediatrics and neonatology. Time just flies. But I feel really, really lucky that really right at the beginning of my career, I found something I loved, which was neonatology. I knew almost from my first day in the NICU that this was what I wanted to do. And I still feel incredibly passionate about the field of neonatology, 
the opportunities that natology presents for really changing the trajectory of a life course for kids and for the colleagues that I have that have been attracted to this field. So, I mean, it was, it was fortunate for me that right away I found something that I really loved. And, you know, I'm old. <laughs> I've been doing this a long time. Back when I started out in neonatology in the mid-1980s, it was a different field. There were so many opportunities for discovery, for learning how to better care for newborns. And that got me into research and into academic medicine. And that has also been an incredible journey for me. I truly love, and now I miss, because I am no longer a bedside clinician, taking care of babies one at a time at a bedside and getting to know their families and feeling like you can make a difference even when the outcome isn't what everybody expected. But I also love being able to ask questions and work on solutions that'll impact the lives of children well beyond those that I'm going to have hands-on interactions with, to make a difference even globally. That to me is really exciting. And so academic neonatology has given me a pathway to pursue all those things that I love. And then I'm kind of one of those people who sees something, thinks it's completely obvious that this is the direction we need to go and gets really frustrated when the administration doesn't help you get there or throws barriers in the way. And finally, one day I woke up and said, oh my goodness, I'm just going to have to go do this myself. And so really, I think the nearly 10 years that I spent as chief of neonatology at Vanderbilt was probably the most fun academic job I have had in my career and allowed me to do many, many things that I still look back at as the highlights of, of my career. And that includes TIPQC, that includes growing the division's clinical footprint, the research portfolio, and mentoring lots of wonderful faculty and trainees. And then I got frustrated again and decided maybe being a chair was a good idea. I don't know, in retrospect, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But it did give me a bigger platform to make change and to impact lives, both patients' lives, as well as the lives of, of faculty, of families, of colleagues. And making a difference is really what my my career, my goals have always been. So uh, yeah, I, I served as a chair of a department of pediatrics, two different institutions for a decade. And this last year, I had an opportunity to write a grant on something that I am also really passionate about, which is to study the impact of environmental factors broadly defined on children with disabilities, which includes a lot of our preterm graduates. And so I wrote a grant, never dreamed it would get funded, but it did, and decided that this was the right time in my life and in my career to transition to full-time research. And so that transition just happened right around the first of the year. So I want to talk about that for, for a second, too, because this sounds really super cool. This Center for Discovery and Innovation. Tell us what that's all about and, and what 
you plan on doing with that uh, over the next uh, next uh, half dozen years or so? So I suspect most people in Tennessee and participating in uh, things related to TIPQC don't know a whole lot about New Jersey healthcare. But Hackensack Meridian Health is the largest healthcare organization in New Jersey with two children's hospitals, 18 hospitals altogether, and literally hundreds and hundreds of ambulatory sites. In the academic realm, it is a relatively young institution. We have a fully accredited now Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine, which truly is a thing of beauty. It's a great, innovative, forward-thinking medical school with a fabulous curriculum and doing, I think, really important things in the area of medical education. And the Center for Discovery and Innovation, which is Hackensack Meridian Health's research institute. It's relatively small, but incredibly powerful, limited number of member scientists, all of whom are very uh, senior, well-funded investigators doing cutting-edge research in a number of areas. They're very basic science-heavy, particularly in the areas of infection and immunology and microbiology and in cancer research, but with a growing translational research program where my grant, my ECHO grant, fits in quite well. And so they have welcomed me with open arms. I couldn't be more pleased. They're incredibly supportive and collaborative and excited about the work that's happening there. And it gives me a platform to continue to work with my faculty in the Department of Pediatrics on all sorts of ECHO projects and collaborators across the U.S. ECHO is a national study. There are about 50 cohorts still continuing to participate in ECHO. I have collaborators all over the country, but in my immediate grant at Northwestern uh, Prentice uh, Women's Hospital and uh, Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. Amazing. So it's going to be exciting just to watch this uh, information and new data roll out over the next uh, half dozen years or so. Congratulations on that. Congratulations on an amazing career. The papers in ECHO are coming out daily. I can't even keep up with it. I think I'm a co-author on 27 papers in 2023, and I can believe me, I didn't write them all. And I think ECHO has published <laughs> thousand papers so far. So there's, it's, yeah, it's really in this exponential phase. Of Goodness pre- gracious. Yeah. yeah, for those of you who can't see my face, my jaw just like dropped to the, to the ground. So, you know, as I mentioned too, you're the founder of TIPQC. TIPQC was one of the first state perinatal collaboratives in all of the United States. I mean, how in the world did you come up with this idea and then navigate through what you had to to create TIPQC and and now have left us with, uh, I think, close to two decades nearly of, uh, of work that we've been, been doing in Tennessee? How did you come up with this idea? Well, I, I don't, don't give me so much credit. It wasn't an original idea. I had been following the work going on in California with CPQCC and was a friend of Jeff Gould, who really, in some ways, is the founder of statewide quality collaboratives. And this was right around the time that I moved to to Nashville. I was disheartened by the terrible birth outcomes in our state, by infant mortality, by our preterm birth rate. At back then, people weren't even yet talking about maternal mortality, but also something that we cannot forget about. And it was 
2004, it was a time when the focus in neonatology was shifting from pushing back the borderline of viability so that younger and smaller babies could survive, to really focusing on the kids that we had already in our NICU and on improving the outcomes for those babies. And I was giving a lot of thought to how do you do that? And starting to read a lot of work about variability in practice, benchmarking. Vaughn was a big thing already. And although we didn't use the word implementation science, really reading about best practices. And so I spent some time out in California. I spent a lot of time talking to Jeff Gould, and I realized that Tennessee needed our own version of CPQCC. And I invited him and some colleagues to Nashville for a two-day conference. It was an enormous success. We were smart enough to invite folks from the Department of Health to the meeting and people from the media and from the governor's office. And the outcome of that conference, besides for Jeff and some friends drinking too much down on Main Street after the conference. It never happens in Nashville now. Come on. Nashville was the birth of Chip QC. And yeah, I wrote a grant. <laughs> There's a film in my life. And you got it funded. <laughs> it funded. And it was quite a generous and I think a little brave of the Department of Health to launch Chip QC with a grant for basically a half a million dollars to really establish the statewide collaborative initially focused mostly on the NICUs in Tennessee, but very quickly partnering with our OB colleagues who are absolutely essential in assuring Mm -hmm. best outcomes for our babies. And then the best thing I did, really the best thing I did was hire Brenda Barker. (laughs) And TIFQC was born and the rest is history. Yeah. So that's amazing. So, and TIFQC has had some amazing success. I mean, over the the nearly two decades, there's been a an impact in the preterm birth rate that's occurred around the state. There's been an impact in the infant mortality. But as I began to become associated with TIPQC, one of the things I noticed, there's been been sort of a plateau in that infant mortality and preterm birth rate. And that's where we came up with this project that we're currently involved in, the Tennessee's Tiniest Babies Project. And we've had the, just the good fortune of getting the all 12, the entire dozen level three and four NICUs around the state to work on a severe interventricular hemorrhage reduction project, to be involved in that. We're about halfway through it. Brenda shared some of our midterm data with me earlier this week, which was really exciting to see changes occurring around the state and some of this variability in practice that occurs at centers, as you mentioned, beginning to change. And one of the potentially better practices that we suggested was why I really wanted to have you on today because you've written, along with, uh, with, with Ronald Poland, one of the classic articles in yeah. the history of neonatology on why we need to avoid sodium bicarbonate in these babies. For the, our listeners, uh, this is a 2008 article that was published in Pediatrics, and there's going to be a link to it in our show notes. I highly recommend you read this article. Judy shared with me her slides back like a decade or and a half ago or something like that. And I gave this talk in Nicaragua that she had put together in Spanish. <laughs> so it was a really fascinating experience. I've been, I sort of grew up with her 
uh, as she was explaining this to us at the bedside as a fellow in neonatology and been, been heavily influenced by this. So Judy, I want you to explain to our audience why sodium bicarbonate is basically useless therapy. Well, that's a mouthful. And I have to laugh because I do think <laughs> this is one of the papers I'm best known for. And after decades of hard work publishing original research, this, this was a review article, right? This was an original work. And if you will allow me, I'll start out with how I got into this in the first place. So you probably do remember that my early career was focused on neonatal lung disease, and I was particularly interested in pulmonary hypertension, both in term and preterm infants. And the very first NIH grant that I got funded was an R01 to study the impact of acidosis and alkalosis on pulmonary vascular resistance. And I, of course, had to review the literature to try to see what was known in the, in the field because alkalosis dilates the pulmonary blood vessels. It has the opposite effect in every other organ system. And I wanted to understand the mechanisms for how that worked in the lung. So I started reading the literature, and it turned out there wasn't a whole lot written about the effect of pH in the lung, but there was a lot written on the effect of pH and PCO2 in the brain, and particularly in the cerebrovascular space. And so I started reading this literature, and the more I read, the more uh-oh moments I had. pH and PCO2 has an enormous impact on cerebral blood flow and cerebral vascular function, both in adults and in newborn animals. And it causes vasoconstriction even sodium bicarbonate causes vasoconstriction, even with a slow infusion, and that causes hyperperfusion in the brain. And this was a time when we were given out bicarbonate water, right? Mm -hmm. And the more you read, the more you realize that bicarbonate decreases oxygenation, consistent with the alveolar air equation. I won't go through that one with you in this, at this time. I had really just very transient effects on pH. We were treating ourselves, not our babies, and resulted in hypercapnia, which again had effects on blood flow to the brain. And there were no randomized controlled trials to show any benefit. Matter of fact, most of the trials showed worse outcomes, and all the retrospective studies demonstrated an increased risk of death or an increase in IVH when neonates in the NICU were given sodium bicarbonate. They weren't great studies. They weren't huge randomized controlled trials, but all the evidence was accumulating to say this was a bad drug. And so I started actually doing talks and you know gave you those slides about the dangers of sodium bicarbonate and that it was basically useless and probably harmful therapy. And people threw tomatoes at me. I mean, I seriously, I got screamed at. People would be apoplectic in the audience. They would stand up and yell. This was so hard-grained in people's practices. And particularly the cardiothoracic surgeons, who I still think use it way too much, they were just really, really upset that this, at that time, fairly young neonatologist getting up there and telling them that what they'd been doing wasn't such a good idea. And so after a few years 
of lecturing, you know, you'd go to these meetings, people would get really upset. Most of the audience would like walk away shaking their head, but I always had a few converts. Every time I gave the talk, there was a handful of people in the audience. It was like, you need to come to my institution and give that talk. We need to hear this, you know, back home. And back home sometimes was Poland or, you know, someplace <laughs> in Europe or someplace in South America. And so I, I actually got to see the world with sodium bicarbonate. That's awesome. Uh, and then finally in 2008, I was like, this is ridiculous. And Ron Poland and I sat down and wrote this paper sodium bicarbonate, basically useless therapy. And man, oh man, it went viral. And I think things changed. NRC changed their recommendations. And now if you go to the NRC neonatal resuscitation guidelines, they don't even mention bicarbonate anymore. It's not, it doesn't even appear in the document. It was really gratifying to see that something really could change, but it took a really long time to get bicarbonate out of our resuscitation guidelines and out of our delivery rooms. And although I think it has declined in use in the NICU to treat metabolic acidosis, I know people have told me that it's creeping back in again. There was a period of time in the last maybe six, seven years where no one was asking for the bicarb talk. And in addition to this podcast, I've gotten two other invitations. Interesting. Few months, few months. We need you to come back and talk about bicarb. Somebody's using it again in our NICU. So, yeah, and that's that's really how this came about because this is one of our potentially better practices. If you give sodium bicarbonate, don't do it because it can lead to intraventricular hemorrhage. And as we began to collect our data, we saw that there was some uses of sodium bicarbonate, and the request was like, "Well, why do we need to quit using it?" So you just explained that. But I want you, but you touched on something else, which I thought was really interesting. And that's even though we don't have any evidence for something, and this can apply not just to sodium bicarbonate, but all different types of other practices, why do people tend to get upset and hold on to things that we don't have evidence for and that we think makes things better, even though just checking that number or doing that thing only makes me better <laughs> in, in my brain that I'm doing something, even though I'm not, and may actually be doing something potentially harmful. How does that work? Yeah, don't do something. Just stand there. <laughs> it's the hardest thing to do. It is. It is really hard. You know, it's human nature. People want to be proactive. They want to respond to a number, a situation that they feel might be harmful to the patient they're taking care of. And old habits die hard. If you've been taught something, it's really easy to just keep doing it without questioning things. But I often talk about the fact that we have a double standard. It's not just neonatology. It's throughout clinical medicine. We have a double standard because we hold new therapies, novel therapies, to a very, very high bar. We need multiple, gigantic, randomized controlled trials with very positive p-values, and even sometimes that isn't enough. But we don't have the same standard for therapies that have been part of practice for a really long time. And it's not just sodium bicarbonate. Think about diuretics. Think about bronchodilators. I mean, you can go on and on and on. There are many, many tools in our toolbox, some of which kind of snuck in there 
never studied in the population that we treat and have just become part of standard practice. And we don't go back and examine the evidence to support or refute the benefit of that therapy or its harm. We just do it because that's what we've always been doing, because someone we respect, a mentor, a you know, another colleague said it was the right thing to do. And it's true when you give sodium bicarbonate, often see an immediate effect in the blood pH, which is what we're measuring. But that's not really what's so important. There are two things that are important when it comes to acidosis. One is what's going on inside the cell. And that paper, if you bother to read it, will explain how sodium bicarbonate dissociates and the CO2 goes into the cell as a gas. It freely diffuses into the cell and it lowers intracellular pH, making your cells more dysfunctional, including your cardiomyocytes that don't contract very well when the pH is low. And the hydrogen ion gets trapped on the outside. So that makes us feel better because the pH goes up. So that's a problem in that the physiology isn't well understood by the people who are using this drug. The second thing is that treating acidosis with sodium bicarbonate is like putting a band-aid on a well that, on a dam that just burst, right? You have to treat the underlying cause of the acidosis. And given bicarbonate, it doesn't do anything to address the underlying cause for why that, ba- why that baby is acidotic. So the drug actually now has a growing amount of evidence that it truly is harmful for the brain, for the heart in general, and particularly for our vulnerable preterm infants. And there's just minimal of any data that it has any positive effect. There are some scenarios, maybe chronic kidney disease, where there's some value for this drug, but not necessarily in neonatology. Yeah. So I hope that just convinced anybody who may think that sodium bicarbonate is a good idea not to do it, or at least think twice about it. But let me, uh, as we begin to wrap this up, how do we, in anything, because you've had a long history of administration and sort of creating change and implementing things and getting people to think about their their practices and what they do. How do we get people to change? What's the best way to, to do that on a real practical level when you're working with someone? Change is hard. Sustaining change is actually harder. And that's where TIPQC and organizations like TIPQC are incredibly important. It keeps people focused with their eye on what's really important. It makes people second guess what they're doing to think about their practices. Is it up to date? Is it standard of care? Do the recent literature and data continue to support its use? Or is it time to take a step back and make a change? And then TIPQC has the ability to do benchmarking, to help people compare what they're doing to what others are doing. And if you've got great outcomes, then great, continue to do what you're doing. But if you're not doing as well as you think you could or should, or if there are units that look like yours that have better outcomes, then it's time to say, what are you doing differently than what we are doing? Is there an opportunity to take one small piece of change, see if it makes a difference, 
Think about your balancing acts. This is all, you know, basic QI methodology. What do we gain? What do we lose if we make this small change? And do PDSA cycles to see whether making a change, even if it's something that you feel really strongly you want to hang on to, can actually impact what's really more important, which is the outcome for your babies and and the statistics for your unit as a whole. And then, you know, you got to keep your eye on the ball because what happens mm-hmm. is drift happens. People do kind of slide back into old habits. It's natural. It's human. Yeah. yeah. So, so love it. All right. One more question before we officially wrap this up. So you're here because we've, we've done this severe interventricular hemorrhage reduction project. We're about halfway done with that. Like literally yesterday, we had our pilot meeting kickoff for our chronic lung disease reduction program. Mm-hmm. So we've got like four bundles in this Tennessee's Tiniest Babies, uh, IVH reduction, chronic lung disease reduction, neck reduction, and hospital-acquired infections reduction that's going to roll out hopefully one, one bundle a year for the next, next uh, few years. And you have also an extensive history in bronchopulmonary dysplasia, chronic lung disease. So I don't want to go through like our entire toolkit with you, but if you had to give me like your top three things we need to do to improve chronic lung disease in Tennessee, and that's something that I think NIH data that was published just like a month ago that that has, even though our mortality has gone down, other things have gone down, our chronic lung disease rates have gone up nationwide over the past like two decades or something like that, which makes sense because we're saving smaller and smaller babies. What are the three things in Judy Ashner's toolkit mm-hmm. she would include that we can do to improve our chronic lung disease rates? I think when it comes to supporting premature babies and their pulmonary function, less is more. Mm-hmm. When I think about how I took care of babies back when I was in training, oh my God, I'm horrified to think about it. The child with 17 chest tubes because we hyperventilated the hell out of their lungs when they had pulmonary hypertension. We did a lot of things we thought was in the best interest of our patients that turned out not to be such a good idea. And we mm-hmm. underestimated our preemies. So some of them need some help. And when it's time to step in, you have to step in. But then give them a shot at being more autonomous with their breathing. I do believe that less invasive approaches are better and that we need to have a little greater tolerance for some of the blood gases. Maybe we need to get fewer blood gases. And the swings in O2 sats. I mean, I do worry about the swings um, for Mm. sure. But fiddling with the FiO2 dial every two seconds to try to micromanage those O2 sats is probably the worst thing that we can do. I do think that there are some exciting novel therapies on the horizon. There are going to be some new clinical trials. It's been a kind of a hiatus For the last decade or so, the FDA has been uninterested in doing new randomized controlled trials to prevent BPD. Some of it is our terrible definitions for BPD and not having a good clinical trials outcome. There are a lot of us working on that. But I think there are some things on the horizon that'll be coming soon. But we can't wait for those. You know, we need to focus on the tools that we do have 
And like I said, sometimes you need to don't do something, just stand there. Yeah, exactly. And I hope our audience will remember that. Uh, so it's going to be exciting as we get this, this kit uh, put together and piloted and then rolled out at our annual meeting in March. So I'll put a plug in for our annual meeting in March. If you're listening and you're involved in Tennessee's Perinatal Quality Collaborative, please come to our annual meeting. You're going to hear all about our chronic lung disease reduction plans and then we're going to see what impact we can make around Tennessee. We're aiming to decrease our chronic lung disease rates using the Jensen definition, by the way, Judy. Hope you're okay with that. Absolutely. I think it's a good right. definition. I actually yeah. what? Good. I saw your eyebrows raise. I was, I was pretty excited just to see it. I was throwing that out there without telling you that's what we were doing. But that's what we, we settled upon. And, of course, we've got a lot of things that Judy mentioned in her top three things that we hope to implement as part of this toolkit as well. And then uh, we're going to see over the next year if we can make a decrease in chronic lung disease and the mortality associated with that and the morbidities associated with that around the state. And then put that together with our severe IVH reduction, go on to net, go on to hospital-acquired infections, and maybe, just maybe, by 2027, Tennessee will be average <laughs> and, uh, and meet all the other states around the union. So Judy, I want to thank you so much for being here today. But before you go, I've got one final question. Okay. You can put a bill, big billboard up anywhere. You can stick it in Nashville. You can stick it in any other place that you've lived there in Hackensack. And every day as people are driving back and forth along the interstate, they're seeing this message that Judy Ashner wants the world to know. And it can be about something we've talked about today. It can be just an aphorism for life, your life philosophy, something you want to share with people. Just what would that be? So, you know, on this bicarb talk, I often use the quote, experience is the ability to make the same mistake repeatedly with increasing confidence. I think it does apply to the bicarb story. But I'm not sure that's what I would put on a billboard. I would put on a billboard a related quote. It's from John F. Kennedy. And it says, experience is like tailgates on a boat, which illuminate where we have been when we should be focusing on where we should be going. Mm. Wow. All right. Deep thoughts with Dr. Judy Ashner. So I want our audience to think about that today. Where are we going? And are people seeing you going somewhere as they are watching your hell lights move? Uh, that is the purpose of TIPQC. I hope that is your purpose in life as well. And I want to, again, thank you, Judy, for being with us today. For all of those, say it again. It was a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And for all of those that are listening that have tuned in today, thanks again for tuning into this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee. 